there are indeed seven deadly sins, but not those ones. These are being committed in the warehouse. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is a Supply Chain Brain podcast. The warehouse is ground zero for things that can go wrong when trying to move product to the customer efficiently. Within those walls lie so many opportunities for failure. Amware Fulfillment has boiled them down into what it calls the seven deadly sins of B2C fulfillment, as laid out in a new ebook by the same name. Today, we're going to run them down with the help of Amware CEO Harry Drapush. Let's find out where mistakes are made and how they can be rectified in the intense and often chaotic world of business-to-consumer distribution. Here's my conversation with Harry Drapush. Harry Drapush, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. We're talking today about the seven deadly sins of B2C, business-to-consumer fulfillment, which is the subject of an ebook that you folks have just put out. So I want to take those one by one. But before we do, I just want to know, who is this for, Harry? Are we talking about brands? Are we talking about e-commerce? Are we talking about brick and mortar, a combination of? Just kind of set the table for our discussion. Sure. We're talking uh, for sure about e-commerce. And for sure, we're talking about brick and mortar and everything that, let's say, happens after the click, after the buy click. Okay, so omni-channel, definitely, right? Definitely omni-channel, yes. Uh, okay, so let's get started on how warehouses and B2C fulfillment operations are falling down in the so-called seven deadly sins. Let's start with number one, bad forecasting. Tell me about that. That's pretty universal or pretty common, is it not? Bad forecasting? Or forecasting, yes, it's fairly common today, and there's obviously reasons for that. Might those reasons have be technology? Might they be process? Might they be just the general unpredictability of things? I mean, why are we so bad these days at forecasting demand? It's all of the above. Big retail does do a good job with forecasting, but many of the pure play online sellers do not. They almost treat it as a nice-to-have, and here are some of the things that we see. Yeah, sometimes marketing doesn't inform fulfillment of upcoming promotions. Procurement might not let fulfillment know when inbound products are on the way or stuck at the port. Operations and logistics fail to leverage historical insights that can help predict upcoming volumes. So you've got kind of a smorgasbord of things that occur. And then there's just online sellers that just may not know how successful a promotion or a program might be. For the logistics provider, it's like, coming to me and saying, you're going to have a wedding and I want you to feed all my guests. And I say, how many guests are you going to have? And you say, I'm not sure. How many meals do I prepare? A question also, I mean, what about the link between the point of sale and going upstream to the suppliers and the manufacturers and the like? Are we still not getting good intelligence at that point that allows us to perhaps track demand and therefore extrapolate that into accurate forecasts? A good third-party provider will for sure look at historical data and see what it's been, whether it's seasonally affected, whether it's promotionally affected. 
we always go back and look at what took place in the past that's similar to what you're trying to do now. We'll put our intelligence on it. We'll plan based on that. Again, that at that point, that's really the best information you have. And the reason we do it is increased labor costs will come if you don't have a good forecast. If you're starting to force your workforce to work uh, extended hours because it came in significantly better than was projected, you really create a stressful work environment that can drive turnovers for, for someone like me. If you're bringing in extra people on short notice, you don't really have enough time to train them properly. That can result in potentially more errors. Uh, and ultimately, all of that just drives higher costs to get your product out the door. And in this day and age, nobody wants to pay more for less. Okay, well, we're going to get into some solutions to this problem as we go down this list. But let's continue with number two for a moment. That is single warehouse strategy. What do you mean by that? You mean like one big regional warehouse or one made central warehouse that serves an entire country or a region? And what's the problem with that? A single warehouse strategy is one that services your market. If your market is region, it would be a regional facility. If your market is the whole United States, then having one facility speaks to that, and it may ultimately be in the center of the country. What's wrong with that is the transit times are going to be higher than having multiple inventory points. Uh, You're shipping from one node, so that's the possibility. Costs, again, you're shipping from one node, so you're spanning several zones, if you will, and the more zones you span, the higher the cost that could potentially be. So you've got shipping time, you've got zone costs, and then you've got what's subject to anything that might happen within that facility. I mean, recently, just last week, there was an ice storm in Dallas, that shut down most of the Dallas facilities of anybody for two to three and possibly four days. Small parcel carriers weren't making pickups even if you were able to get open. So when you've got a single warehouse strategy, something like weather can really be effective. Pandemic, if the flu runs through your warehouse. I mean, we just went through COVID, right? We went through strict COVID protocols to make sure that we cleaned, we touched surfaces, we cleaned everything. We probably increased our cost for operating the building by about 15% just for safety protocols and cleaning protocols. So when you have a one warehouse strategy, it's certainly easy to manage because your inventory is in one point or what comes in and goes out from there. But you're subject, again, to weather, you're subject to pandemics, and you're subject to anything else that might occur in the local area, blackouts, power outages, thunderstorms that affect power in the summertime. Okay, so number three, poor associate retention. What's that all about? You're hiring workers to come work for you, and you want to create a good environment to retain them. The turnover is estimated by the U.S. government to cost about $8,500 per turnover. So if you've got 100 people and you're turning 10%, and I would tell you in the warehousing business, 49% is the average. It's an astounding 49%. But if it was just 10% in a 100-person warehouse, you would be incurring costs of $85,000 a year in lost productivity, training expenses, hiring expenses, The turnover then drives things like quality. So you really, really want to do a good job of keeping the employees you have. They have tribal knowledge. They get to know your customers. They get to know your processes. Work for them becomes second nature. Everybody likes to work in a stable environment. When people around me are leaving left and right, I'm starting to wonder, gee, am I the crazy one here? Should I be leaving Mm -hmm. as well? Should I be looking for jobs? So Uh, It it really uh, behooves you to retain your people, treat them well, keep employees relatively happy, be flexible, 
on your work times wherever you can. Invest in them, training, rewards, acknowledgement. Everybody loves a pat on the back. Do the things that you have to do to keep your employee workforce there and generally happy. This next one is associated with that, and it is no performance standards. Are you referring to performance standards of your staff and people or the operation in general? What are you talking about there? Well, we're talking about both. It's important that you have performance standards and then train people to them. If you want to run an efficient operation, if you want to run a quality operation, you can't have wobble in your processes and you can't have wobble in your standards. If you don't measure down to the associate level, you really don't know how people are working and then it becomes very, very difficult to operate an efficient warehouse. Plus, now listen, we watch sporting events and we don't watch them just for the art of seeing a sporting event. We like to know the score, don't we? I mean, it's okay <laughs> to sit for a football game for three hours, but imagine not knowing the score or just watching football. When you turn that off, it's not very rewarding. Associates want to know how they're doing. They really would like feedback. And believe it or not, most associates really want to do a good job. And measuring people and giving feedback really brings out the competitive instinct in us of all wanting to do better, all wanting recognition. So creating standards allows you to do that. It it gives an associate an idea, sometimes without even communication, how they're doing. It's almost self-policing. If you're telling me I should pick 50 orders an hour and I'm doing 30, I know I've got a problem. And I want to raise my hand and ask for help before you approach me and tell me I need help. Or even worse yet, when you approach me and tell me I'm not cutting it, you've got to make a change. So creating those standards, training people to them, communicating that to them is all part and parcel to really having happy fulfillment associates and having a good, efficient operation. Is it possible to go to the other extreme, though? Because in recent years, over the years, we've heard about the popularity of so-called engineered labor standards in which you are timing and overseeing virtually every second of an associate's time on the job, which I would think that if it's done wrong, it would cause for a very alienating environment and actually go right back to the poor associate retention problem. You'd lose people if you do that a certain way. So how do you balance those things? There's a couple ways to do it. Could be the carrot and the stick, right? Performance that exceeds standards gets rewarded, more money, more recognition. Those are things that are valuable to associates. And you're right. Nobody wants to be quarterback. Nobody really wants to be looked over their shoulder for a full eight-hour shift. Hey, what are you doing? I think at the end of the day, it is a balance. It's about giving people feedback. Maybe once a week, you have a review with people. Certainly, there are stand-up meetings where you can review the team in general. Hey, how did the team do yesterday? And you know how you did relative to the team. So I don't necessarily think that it has to be soft-pedaled, but I think you're right. It has to be balanced. It can't be every hour that you're on someone for something. And then more importantly, you're really taking an interest in the associate. Hey, we want to make sure that we're not making it more difficult for you. We want to understand the impediments that you're having to getting where we, we both think you should be. I mean, when it's presented in that light as a partnership with the associate, you're going to get there faster, and you're going to find out faster whether, hey, listen, maybe the associate's just not cut out for the job. Okay, number five, and this may go back to number one, where bad forecasting or any other aspect of warehouses that are not doing the right thing these days, and that is failure to automate. When you say failure to automate, what do you mean? Failure to automate what? Failure to automate processes where they can be automated. So we can be talking about simple things like just scanning, RF, conveyance, automatic conveyance to move product. 
or we can be talking about things like robotics that don't necessarily replace people, but work alongside of people to make them more efficient. Look, in a warehouse, 50% of your cost is just an employee traveling within the warehouse, to and from the location, to and from a pack station, whatever it may be. When you automate you can reduce the overall headcount that you might need to help a customer grow. Look, the laws of physics don't cease to exist in our warehouse. When a customer says, listen, I'm going to grow 2x this year, what does that mean? How are you going to support me? They don't want to hear I'm going to add twice as many people. It might be the answer, but more than likely it's not. Again, because you wind up with compression. There's only so many people you can fit in. They get in each other's way. What they really want to hear is, Can I grow with you and can you accommodate that growth with both people, the right blend of people and the right blend of technology ads? So technology allows us to better utilize the facility. It allows us to judiciously add people where we may need to add them. But a lot of the repetitive jobs which employees don't like doing can be replaced with technology. So whatever it may be, there's things like pick to light that really directs an employee that uh, just look at the light. The light will tell you where to pick it and it will tell you how many to pick, put that in. Things like that make an employee more efficient. It's less tiring and taxing on the associate. There's less stress on the associate, making sure I'm not reading a 14 digit barcode to make sure I've got the right product here. So technology is very, very important. Unfortunately, not everybody can afford to add the latest technology. So when you work with a third-party provider that can spread that cost over multiple accounts, you can really take advantage of what's out in the marketplace without having to make a significant investment yourself. I would think also you would want the ability to scale up or down, like, for instance, if you've got robots in the facility, or for that matter, people, to scale up or down according to the needs of the moment, because we have peak seasons where you need more of that and then other times when you don't. So do you want your you want to make sure that your automation or technology is fairly flexible, do you not? You absolutely want to do. Plug and play comes to mind. I would tell you that in our warehouses, we have a combination of robots, pick to light, smart conveyance. And we actually have drone technology in a couple of our facilities that really just help us cycle count the product. But yes, Mm -hmm. technology helps you flex up and down. And listen, as I mentioned before, you want to retain your employees. Laying off employees and bringing employees in constantly is not a good thing to do. That will drive turnover. Employees need a paycheck. They need a 40-hour work week. They need benefits. The technology allows you to keep a base set of employees and augment that with more technology or less technology. And sometimes if you just have seasonal work, you can add workers just for the season. But technology really is what allows that to happen. Number six, failure to optimize packaging. Is this an environmental or green play or an efficiency play or both? What are we talking about when we we talk about optimizing packaging? Well, for sure, we are talking about a green play here. It's not the primary reason for doing it, but it is a reason for doing it. Resources are finite. You don't want to have to use more packaging, more corrugated than you actually need. It's more trees, more manufacturing, more pollution. So from a green perspective, yes, it's something you want to look at. But more importantly, a 40 cubic inch box can be set in many, many ways, one of which would be highly inefficient. Usually when they're flat and long versus high and narrow, the high and narrow box generally is much more efficient than a flat and a wide box, and both can be 40 cubic inches. But the last thing you want to do is ship air. You don't want to pay for air when you're shipping. And if you're a company like ours, ships 15 million orders a year. So you can imagine what a little 10% of air, how much cost that's going to increase overall. So you want to get the right size packaging. You want to get the right size dunnage. 
It protects the product better when it's packed properly and there isn't a whole lot of space. I remember getting stuff from that company with a big smile on the outside of the box. It rattled and roll in there and you wonder, is my product damaged? But if you're hearing product roll in there, it's not good. It's not packaged properly. It's not safe for the product. And again, you've probably paid for air. I get it. In some environments, you're just throwing stuff in. It's ABC. It's quick. One, two, three. But there's a lot of cost associated with that. Guess who's paying for it? The shipper is paying for it, right? The manufacturer, the retailer is paying for that. So Mm -hmm. lots of reasons to, to optimize that packaging and reduce your cost and reduce your carbon footprint. Finally, the seventh deadly sin of B2C fulfillment is set it and forget it slotting. Explain what you mean by that, please. That's the Ron Popeil method, isn't it? Set it and forget (laughs) it. Slotting is critical. Again, as I mentioned earlier, 50% of of the cost in a warehouse is walking, is travel. So to the extent you can reduce that travel, you'll be more efficient. You'll get more throughput at a lower cost, and that's what everybody wants. So slotting, there tends to be a proliferation of SKU growth for customers. They, They may start out with 30, 40, 50. We have customers that have 3,000 SKUs. If they're shotgunned over a wide area and you've got to walk that entire area to fill orders, that's a lot of travel. By taking a look at the fastest movers, keeping them in an area that's really advantageous, close together, you can wind up doing 75 to 85% of your orders with minimal walking. And ultimately, slotting allows you to do that. And the funny thing is, Not only do SKUs change for a customer, but buying habits change. What was popular today might not be popular next week. So you've constantly got to take a look at it. I don't know if I would look at my slotting weekly. I would not go longer than monthly by checking where are the fast movers here? Where are they located in my warehouse? Let me make sure I move and slot them together because the small amount of time that you'll spend moving product within a warehouse will yield big dividends as you start to fill orders with it. Well, that is some great advice. Once again, the seven deadly sins of B2C or business-to-consumer fulfillment as laid out in an e-book from Amware Fulfillment. We've been talking to Harry Drapush, CEO. Harry, thank you so much for spending the time to explain these things. We will link to that in the show notes to this episode. Thanks again for being with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Harry Drapush of Amware Fulfillment, talking about the seven deadly sins of B2C fulfillment. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. And also watch videos on our YouTube channel. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.